live yeah, yeah, from yeah. Planet Lovetron. But he speaks so well with your host, Mr. Kinetic. Thank you. My name is Mr. Kinetic, and you're listening to Buddy Speak So Well. Thank you for uh, checking in with me. I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes. Hit the little subscribe button. You can check me out at mrkinetic.com. That's M-R-K-I-N-E-T-I-K.com. Thank you so much. All right, so... Um, this is uh, MLK Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Day Weekend. And uh, it's definitely a time when I'm drawn to think a little more about um, things that Dr. Martin Luther King was a part of, things that he did in his lifetime. Um You know, it it took me a long time to really have a firm grip on how I felt and like what my what my what my feelings were about Dr. King. And I think some of that some of that stemmed from the fact that a lot of what was presented to me about him was squarely uh, rooted in the the role of nonviolence in his form of activism and anti-racism, anti-imperialism, anti anti-poverty, which, you know, just as he was living a life and was seeking better outcomes for people, particularly black people, with with the hope that it would um, bring about some peace where there was not um, just the absence of violence, but, you know, peace that was driven and, and created by, you know, justice. And so a place where justice was a part of what people could expect you know, I respect that. Um, it's really hard for me to to fathom, like, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't really think that, it, it, it's hard for me to imagine doing and saying what I believe in at the risk of, like, my life. And I don't feel like my life is on the line, you know, when I put this podcast up. But... To live in a time, well, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel like it is, but I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm a big enough deal for that. But maybe there's somebody out there somewhere, you know, generally praying for my downfall. You know, people who believe in the things I believe, and I still believe that goes on. There's plenty of people who completely disagree with Kings approach then and his goals then and there are plenty of people who disagree with that stuff now but anyway one of the things that i'm i you know happened to come across after i got older was a was a a little essay that he wrote in like 1948 when he was at morehouse and um i remember going to the martin luther king jr like memorial down in atlanta and the museum Long time ago, I think I was maybe 15 or 16 years old. And I went down there with my church that I was going to at the time, Chapel 3, back in Dayton, Ohio, on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, shout out to all my Chapel 3 people, Paige, Manor Mafia. <laughs> oh, man, with goofballs. Paige Manor, though. Yep. So me my homies listening today. That's what's up, y'all. I love y'all. Thank you for being a part of my life. Um, I wish some days we could just go kick it at the youth center one more time. But anyway, so I I remember going to all that down in Atlanta and being really just, it was cool how, to me, it was always cool that one person was supported by a lot of family and friends and, and like was able to make such an impact to the point that many, many years after his death, we... And his life, we we are here in a place that was made to honor his life and people visit it regularly and it's a big deal. You know, that's amazing to me. It's amazing. And nobody will ever be able to take that away from anybody. It's amazing, especially for it to be a black man. That was amazing to me that like you could mean that much to that many people because of, not because of 
things like, you know, playing sports. And I love sports, but not because of stuff like that, but because of your mind and because of your, your determination and your will and your ability to, to coordinate and bring people together and move in one direction together in spite of all the drama and problems and things that still, I'm sure, went on within, within the interactions because <clears throat> I think we got this fake view that, like, everything that happened um, in the civil rights movement always happened in, with people with smiles on their faces. I'm sure people were doing plenty of disagreeing. You know, having, life was still happening for people. It wasn't like life stopped for the work to be, be done. So I'm sure it was difficult extremely difficult more than more than any of us are really capable of understanding without being a part of it but that impact was amazing that it could be like that so i remember when i started teaching i remember thinking like okay so martin luther king day come up february getting ready to be right after that you know i'm like young black teacher one of the only i think i was the only brother in the building at the time that was a classroom teacher i'm pretty sure i was was only only black man in the building and uh, maybe I'm, am I forgetting somebody? No, nah, I think it, I think it was just me. And so it's been like uh, that's I think that's the only school where it was like that. Nope, it was like that in another school I worked at. It's been like that a few times. Anyway, so definitely always been one of the few wherever I've worked, which is a whole nother discussion. But I remember thinking like, yo, I got represent. I got to make sure I have something for the kids, something, something the kids can, can walk away with. And so one year, I found The Purpose of Education, which was an essay that he wrote. And it's basically, he's in college talking about education and like his, his belief and his stance on the purpose of it. So I read it and I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. Um, you know, and I really get down with all of it. I recommend that you go and read it. I definitely think it, it's something that helped me shape my attitude towards my work as a teacher. And so... One part of it, I'm going to read you a part of it because I, I want I want y'all to hear some some things that he was that he was speaking on, in in this particular essay, and then I'm going to explain like who he referenced and just trying to give some background. <clears throat> so, the function of education, therefore, is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically, but education, which stops with efficiency, may prove the greatest menace to society. The most dangerous criminal may be the man gifted with reason, but with no morals. The late Eugene Talmadge, in my opinion, possessed one of the better minds of Georgia or even America. Moreover, he wore the Phi Beta Kappa key. By all measuring rods, Mr. Talmadge could think critically and intensively, yet he contends that I am an inferior being. Are those the types of men we call educated? We must remember that intelligence is not enough. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. The complete education gives one not only power of concentration, but worthy objectives upon which to concentrate. The broad education will, therefore, transmit to one not only the accumulated knowledge of the race, but also the accumulated experience of social living. If we are not careful, our colleges will produce a group of closed-minded, unscientific, illogical propagandists consumed with immoral acts. Be careful, brethren. Be careful, teachers. And so I remember reading that the first time, like, wow. Like, I never really knew nothing about, you know, that wasn't really hip to that side of, of Martin, you know what I mean? It's always, you know, been in the mountaintop or I have a dream or um, uh, even Letter from Birmingham Jail, which people leave out the part about when he really be going on about talking about white moderates being worse in some ways than just full-out racist, which is an incredible uh incredibly sobering look at the role of, at the time, in his opinion, the role of white people as they move towards, uh, you know, a better civil rights standing and equal rights, equity, so on and so forth. But I wasn't really hip to this side of him, you know, and I knew that Martin Luther King had like went to college when he was real young. I think he was, I think he might've been like, he was super young when he, when he, when he graduated from, from college. I do remember that. And uh, I'm going to look that up while I'm still talking. And so I remember thinking like, okay, he got a stance on education. And this is at a time in my career where I thought I had an idea about what I was going, going for, thought I, thought I knew what I was trying to do. But really I was just 
like only beginning to understand anything, you know? And it wasn't like, maybe to me, it didn't feel like it at the time. I, I, don't, I don't know that I was like boastful about it and I probably was at some points, but there was definitely an attitude in my head that I had, I, I kind of figured that I like understood. You know, I, had a, I felt I had a pretty good grip on what was going on. Um, and so he, okay, so let's see. So he went to pass the exam at age 15 and, entered, and went to Morehouse at age 15. So he was young. But anyway, and, and so this like was something that I remember reading and thinking like, okay, this is, this is the, whole, the whole essay is something I revisit frequently because I'm still trying to add to my approach because I really believe that being an educator is bigger than just um, people learning how to add and subtract, multiply, divide, write, read, you know, understand the sciences and, and, and you know, humanities and athletics and, you know, all these different arts and so on and so forth. You dig all these different things. I get that that's a part of it. And it's a lovely part of it. But really, when we were talking, when we we're saying that education has the power to alter the course of, of the world, what we teach people and how we teach it to them and how their experiences are when they're learning is bigger than that. It becomes a vehicle for things to move in the world. You know, that's what I believe about education. And so as an educator, I believe that we come in at a very... It, arguably the most essential time in someone's life is that developmental period where they are learning the the bulk of what they might learn for the rest of their lives. As a, as a young person, when that mind is still malleable, the experiences can still be had in a low-risk situation. We can kind of, you know, create and design experiences that will not break people. And and that's important. The next The next line of the world, you know, they sit in our classrooms on a daily basis. And so that's what I believe about it. And it's hard, but that's what I believe about it. And I love it. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But when I first saw this, I'm like, man, that's incredible. But one thing I didn't know, I, I didn't know who Eugene Talmadge was. So when he gets to that, I'm like, okay, I don't know who that is. Um, and I said, well, I kind of figured, you know, if it's anything like hip hop, somebody name get mentioned in the middle of the verse or whatever, the essay, you know, that's, that's, you know, you know, you got to know as a reader, like, oh, that's, in, that's important. We don't just throw people's names into our work, you know, without finding some kind of value in doing so. And so I looked up the name, uh, and he was a governor of Georgia, who at one point in time was investigated as possibly being involved in uh, some murders that happened in a rural like county in Georgia, somewhere, um, now does it say that it's somewhere near Monroe in Georgia, something like that. Anyway, some people got killed and got lynched basically by a mob of like 30 some odd people. They're crossing this bridge, people surround the car, pull them out the car, they shoot all two couples of people. One of the, one of the people that died, um, Man, it's like it's two couples that that were murdered, and it's uh, Roger and Dorothy Malcolm, and George and May Murray Dorsey. Um, you know, and it's like it's described as a lynching, and the FBI investigated it at one point in time, and uh, you know, um, it's, it was like some rumors that George Dorsey was dating a white woman, he was an army vet, and so you know that was, you know, that was all all sorts of out of bounds at the time. <clears throat> and this is in 1946. So it's a couple of years before that letter. And the essay that Martin Luther King wrote. So, you know, secretly dating white women back then was enough to get you killed, which is uh really crazy to think about. Um people really got killed over who they were dating. And I mean, I don't know if I can readily identify that now. I'm sure it takes place somewhere, but you think not in our in some of the people in our family's lifetime, people were getting murdered for who they for who they were with based off of race. And uh, the other the other gentleman, Roger Malcolm, 
the town was mad with him because he had stabbed a white farmer. I guess they got into it a couple days earlier because of like some tension about this election that was happening. And so people got worked up, you know, get into it or whatever. And, you know, the brother get the best of the white dude and stab him, I guess. Which, you know, not to diminish the stabbing part, but this is a different time. I mean, you know, it was kill or be killed if you, was, if you were a black man back then in some parts of the country. If you got into it with somebody, you either was going, I don't know, I guess you was just going to take the L. And, and if you wasn't going to fight, you was getting ready to take an L because you was outnumbered. Or you could fight back. And if you, I guess maybe if you get the best of the, of the white person, you could probably expect that they're going to come looking for you. So, because uh, that's what happened. So they, they, they catch him coming across the bridge after they had somebody, uh, somebody, some dude named Lloyd Harrison, who was white, he bailed out Roger Malcolm, which is the guy that stabbed somebody. And then they were driving home, and Malcolm was with his wife, and the other couple was in the car. They get ambushed by a white mob on near Morris Ford Bridge, like 30 people, tie to some trees, and then basically firing squad these people, and then left them there. Um, left them there to die. And uh, Dorothy Malcolm was seven months pregnant at the time. So this is, uh, when, he, when he brought up Eugene Talmadge, it was, it was investigated at one point in time by the FBI that maybe he could have had some involvement, but of course the FBI agent that was on the case at the time said that it was just unbelievable that Eugene Talmadge could have been involved. And so they didn't really, I mean, maybe somebody will hear this and like dispute me, but based off what I read, Looked like the FBI just kind of backed up off of it, um, which wouldn't surprise me because this is J. Edgar Hoover we're talking about, who's running the FBI, who's one of the worst people ever in the history of the country in terms of like being involved in our federal government and his use and abuse of power. Just absolutely horrible. Um, shout out to Dr. Deneau at Butler University who taught a class called Race and uh Race in the United States. That took my junior year. Me and my homeboy Dola both took that class. And uh, it was a small class. And Dr. Deneau did not, pull, you know, she laid it down. She told it like it was. And she backed it up with facts. And I remember I had to do a project or I had to do like a, an uh, essay. I think it was like a research paper in that class. And that was when I like decided to pick COINTELPRO, which is the FBI counterintelligence program. And they like disrupted several organizations, uh, conducted all kinds of spying on citizens in America, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, um, Huey Lewis, uh, man, Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, Mark Clark, um, Fred Hampton, uh, Angela Davis, you know, I mean, you name it, if it was somebody, you know, all the presidents, I mean, which was a different move that J. Edgar Hoover was doing. But COINTELPRO was basically spying on American organizations, particularly ones that were involved in efforts to secure rights or um, increase the freedom and justice for people of color, namely black people at the time, along with uh, some Native Americans or First Nations people, I should say and uh, some Hispanics and Latinos. Uh, my Latinos uh, friends, somebody please tell me which one I'm supposed to say. I really, I get it. I, I know it sounds bad, but I get confused. Um, I love y'all though. Thank you for helping me understand another dimension of uh, perspective in America because <clears throat> the perspective that yeah, it's just it's a whole nother it's a whole nother discussion about what that what the life of uh I guess Latino people in America is like, what that has been like for them and what it continues to be like even now. It's it's definitely got its own uh got its own wrinkles. So let me get back to anyway, so Eugene Talmadge, not a very good guy. So when Martin Luther King said that, uh his name, that was he was basically saying, this is a dude that I know by measurement is intelligent and it surely has, you know, the, the ability to, you know, to think 
and understand and reason, but he believes that I'm subhuman. He doesn't say that, but that's what is essentially white supremacy and racism creates a view where people are viewed as less than extremely, which would be subhuman, that we are not even worth the label and dignity of humanity. And that was the governor of a state, the state of Georgia was the governor. It wasn't just like a guy on Twitter who talks too much and is ignorant or somebody posting on Facebook that's ignorant or a troll on in the comments. It was the governor of a state who was possibly involved in a lynching. That's who he was talking about. So, yeah, I bet even then that was like, excuse me? I bet there was some people that was mad when they saw that. Probably still mad. So when I think about Martin Luther King Jr., and I apologize for talking for so long without a break, but uh, you got to get your kids out of just the I have a dream. Get them, get them, get them out of that. Teach them about that, but get them on up out of that, man. Please, do it, do it for, do it for the people. Martin Luther King Jr. was bigger than just you know. I have a dream, my children to be able to play with white children. And we'll all be able to hold hands and, you know, all of that. This definitely was a part of the, the, the move. <clears throat> but Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't no punk neither. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was, he was, by, you can look at his work. He was about going after what he believed was right. And he was, you know, only thing he wasn't trying to do was be violent about it. But he protested, he spoke, he marched, he met with people, he spoke, you know, he got up and talked and visited and traveled and went on TV and, you know, was with the people, hard on his family, you know. I'm sure that was difficult, you know, he still had a family to take care of. I mean, all these things, like he was still a man. He was still a man too, you know. So it wasn't like he was immune to life. I think sometimes we act like people, you know, that are great and have done great things in the world didn't have a life too. All these people still had lives they had to manage on top of giving so much to other people. And so I just think about Martin Luther King Jr. in that way. I love that, you know, and just about every, you know, I guess city worth being in for me. Got a got a street named after Dr. King Jr., you know. You know, I love that. I love stuff like that. I, it's amazing to me that you can have that much impact on the world, the whole world. And so as a young black man, You know, when it when it sometimes ain't really, it don't really feel like you can have that impact. Sometimes it don't. It just feel like, man, you know, I don't know. Maybe I think about it too much. But it can be hard sometimes, you know, try to figure out what can I do? How can I make a difference? But then I remember, you know, people have done it. People have done it. And not just Dr. King, but it took a lot of people behind Dr. King, supporting Dr. King to be, all, be able to do all that work. You know, Bayard Rustin, Ralph Abernathy, you know, Coretta Scott King, especially. You know, and there's, you know, that list goes on and on and on. There's tons of people. John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis. Uh, you know, a lot, 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 lot of people involved in supporting that work. And it was the people that, the people that decided, yeah, I like what he's talking about. Yeah, we can get, I can get with this. Those people, especially the millions of people who, whose names we'll never be able to, will know 
and we will never get a holiday, I guess. But I kind of feel like when we celebrate uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s day as a holiday, I feel like we're celebrating those millions of people because I believe it was millions. It has to be. If you think about connectivity, it had to be millions of people who were affected in a way that said, yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm Ryan with, with Dr. King. I like that. We can do this. That's amazing. And we celebrate all those people when we celebrate him. That's, what, that's how I believe. That's what, that's what I think about it. So <clears throat> it feels good to get that off my chest. I kind of been waiting to record that. So we'll be back. This is Buddy Speaks So Well with Mr. Kinetic. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends and your enemies too. I'm really, we need to be, we need as many people to be in the conversation, willing to stay in the room, to get in the room and stay in the room. We need as many people as possible that are willing to do that. So tell everybody. my jam right there that's d-train with uh keep on that's man that's the jam right there so let me talk to y'all real quick about that so if i was if i had my own grocery store welcome oh well welcome back to buddy speak so well this is mr kinetic so um let me so like if i had my own like if i had my own grocery store that's the that's the kind of stuff you're probably hearing. It would be all like if you if you can't dance to it, I wouldn't play it. It would be like stuff you would have to be able to jam, you know. I said that gives me a good idea for something. Uh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> it gives me a good idea for something. I th- I think that I might I might explore maybe. Uh, I think I might run a DJ mix through the podcast once or once or twice every now and then. Just so, uh, I mean, I guess it's my podcast, so I can do whatever I want to do. But, yeah, so, man, that's the kind of stuff I would hear at the grocery store. I want to give a special shout-out to my Uncle Tony, a.k.a. TJ the DJ. That's my mom's brother right there. He's uh, the first DJ I ever knew in my life. And I know that's, I know D-Train, I know that's one of I know that's one of my uncle's jams right there. My uncle, uh, I remember my uncle like when he would get on a lot of stuff he would play. You would call him like boogie records. Now I guess it'd be like late seventies, early eighties, like R and B slash funk. So stuff like 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 D Train uh, stuff that Kashif was producing. Um, stuff like uh, Ooh So Fine. So fine, blow my mind. Ooh, so fine, so fine, blow my mind. Like that, like I know that man. It'd be stuff like that that my uncle would play. And uh, I remember thinking, like, yo, this is funky. This is so funky. Hold on, real quick. We got, we got, we got. Come on, man. We got. I gotta play that. Hold on. So fine, so fine, blow my mind. 
Ooh. I mean, that's, come on, man. So fine. So fine. Blow my mind. I mean, come on. That's a jam right there. Uh. Yeah. Imagine that come on in the grocery store. You definitely dancing in produce to that. Man, how could you not? I guess it's really how I feel about music. Like, they're like, how do you not dance to that? Like, who are you? Who are you that you're so cool that you can't dance to that? There's so much music. Like, I feel like that's one of the greatest feelings when you hear a song and it's like, I can't help but dance to this. I can't. Even if you can't dance. Like, that's what, like, okay, so dig it. I play a lot of weddings. That's kind of like primarily what I DJ nowadays. Wedding receptions, uh, special events. You know, some of my favorite gigs are when I get to play music and like people are only kind of attending to what I'm doing where I don't have to, where it doesn't have to necessarily be all about like having a huge dance party. That's when you can play stuff that's really, that's like when I will play stuff that I really, really, really love. But there's nothing in the world like being a part of something that makes people happy. You know what I mean? Me and my buddy, Rusty Redenbacher, that's like my, my big brother. Especially like, you know, learned a lot from Russ, especially about DJing. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, matter of fact, I think it was New Year's Eve. We were both DJing weddings. And, you know, we'll like text each other in the middle of the gigs, just be like, yo, what's up, man? We'll show each other what we playing. You know, show you like, so if I'm doing like a blend that I think is real cold, I'll take a picture of my screen. I'll send it to Russ. I'll be like, I'm killing him in here. You know, Russ will send me something back. Be like, God, I'm, I got him going in here. And, uh, you know, towards the end of the night, you know, we were talking about, man, how great it is to just be able to be a part of people having a good time. And, you know, we get to play the music for it. We get to be a part of helping people just, you know, for a little bit of time in their life, just do nothing but just enjoy the moment, play, you know, listen to music, dance and sing, clap and, you know, sweat out their clothes with their friends and their family. Like, that's such a blessing to be a part of. But, uh, like, man, sometimes you just, I see some really interesting dancing. No, I, I'm not going to front. I see a lot of people that like, whoo, what, I don't know what they doing. But, they be jamming though. Those be the people, the people that really quote unquote can't dance, they would jam so hard. I swear they some of the they jam. People that ain't really worried because they be like, well, I, I know I can't really dance. So they don't really be tripping off of it. They just doing their thing. You know, they ain't trying to be on Soul Train or nothing like that. And they out there on the floor the whole time. You know, they stay through the slow song dance with they date or whoever they came with. They be out there for the for the big group dance, you know, the, the ones that, you know, have everybody like the, the floor open up. So, you know, maybe you playing something. I'm trying to think of something that maybe get like the floor or like move around a little bit where people will really be into it. Like heavy into it. Or really anything by MJ. Man, you play Don't Stop Till You Get Enough or you play Off The Wall or Want To Be Starting Something. 
yeah, those are some huge records to me anyway. You play those. And I know some people are like, man, that's the best you... Look, when you work in a wedding, man, it ain't really time to show off. It ain't time to show off how much you know about an artist to me. I don't think it's about that. If your client asks you to do that, okay, then do that. But a lot of times your clients, they trying to have a party. You know, they invite all these people, pay for all these people's meals and stuff. These people that came from Law they're trying to jam. So it ain't really time for you to be playing the B-side or something and be the like... Something that only was sampled once, you know, by somebody is like a rare break, rare groove. You 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 can only do that, you know, if the crowd will allow that. But a lot of times, I that ain't really what we doing at the reception. We trying to have a good time. We playing the hits, man. Um, so what I do, I usually would just be trying to play hits that people might not remember or ain't heard in a while. So, you know, I feel like, uh, or like working day and night, but. Michael Jackson is one I don't think people play a whole lot in their spare time. Uh, you know. But anyway, you see all these people dancing and having a good time singing. You know, they clapping, singing along with the song. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So that's one of my favorite things about DJing. I really, there's not too many gigs I won't take. You know, if, if, it's, if it makes sense financially for me to be there, um, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go do, I'm not going to go work for, you know, just for nothing. Not, it, it ain't, no, I can't do that. I can't do it like that. But, uh, I also ain't trying to, you know, run people into the ground, but, um, I don't, I had a, the reason why it's like that, I had a, my jazz piano teacher at Butler University, Gary Walters. He's an amazing jazz piano player, amazing piano player in general, but amazing jazz piano player. And he taught jazz piano over at Lily Hall. And uh, we used to go over, you know, I'd go over there for class. And I remember uh, one of the, he's a, uh, Clarence Crane is his name. He played basketball at Butler and he went to Butler, graduated from Butler. So yeah. And uh, he's a pretty, pretty well-recognized figure in the Butler, like, university family. And he comes to a lot of games and stuff like that. And I remember he had talked to, um, I think he probably, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I can't really remember exactly how he got to me, but he did. And somebody must have told him that I, had played, I could play piano a little bit or whatever and asked me if I would play, you know, just music as people were coming in for, like, um, a gala that he was having, that he's like, for a, a group that he's a part of called 100 Black Men here in Indianapolis. And he was like, um, you know, why don't you come play piano? And, uh, you know, asked me what it would cost. And I, like, didn't know what to say because it was the first time I'd ever played. And that was, like, the first paid gig I've ever played uh, by myself. One of the few, but, like, the f even now, like, solo piano gigs, I don't know, maybe have done five. Um, I don't really know enough other people's music to play piano gigs. Um, I know a lot of my own music and I can sit there and noodle around on chords all night, which is what I did. Um, <laughs> I didn't really know a whole lot of tunes. I knew a couple of tunes. I knew Blue and Green by, by uh, Miles Davis. Uh, I think I knew uh, How High the Moon, maybe. All the Things You Are, stuff. I maybe knew four or five songs. Um, I knew... Uh, Probably Jesus is Love by the Commodores, uh, Ordinary People by John Legend, I think I knew. I, I didn't know very many songs. I didn't know enough songs to play for a whole hour, for sure. I didn't know them very well at all. I couldn't play the melody in my right hand very well at that time. And still not, I'm not a melody piano player very well now even. But um, I remember asking, I said, well, I'll ask Gary, I'll ask, I'll ask Professor Walters, like what I should do. Should I, like, should I do it for free or should I not? So I asked him that and he looked at me. I'll never forget this. And he looked at me and said, well, first off, you should never do it for free unless you just absolutely want to. You should, but that should be very rare that you should do it for free. And I said, well, I said, why do you say that? He said, because there are people who rely on gigs, on paid gigs, you know, to live. 
they're musicians. And this is, I was young at the time. I didn't really have an understanding of what being a professional musician was like. I wasn't a professional music, so musician, I didn't know. At that time, the most I knew about selling music was selling CDs to, you know, some of the people I knew on campus with me and Dola and Jeff, we would carry, run them out CDs around and sell them for five bucks, you know, or, or helping print up CDs with DJ AO and, and Dola and Jeff in the lab, in the computer lab in my dorm. You know, taking up all the printers, printing off labels to put them on CDs to sell down to Circle City Classic and then sell to our, our, like, to people we went to school with. That was the most I knew about being a professional musician. Trying to put, you know, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about paying, playing at paid gigs. And so when he said that, he was like, people live off of that. And so if you're going to take the gig, if you get the gig, you should get paid too. He said, if you're not willing, he said, if you don't, I think what he was trying to get me to understand, or at least what I took away from it was that if you don't feel comfortable being a professional, somebody else does. And so either be a professional about it or don't do it. Um, that's kind of what I grabbed from that, unless you just are totally okay with that. And I, it's something I think about all the time. <laughs> to this day, it's something I think about because I, I, I know, you know, I'm a professional. And I, I firmly believe that musicians that are professionals deserve to be paid. Um, and I've promoted enough shows and been a part of enough events in my life that I put on on the other side of things where I was in charge of finding talent and making sure they got paid. Everybody that ever played anything I was ever involved in, they got paid. It may not have been a whole lot. There were some nights that me and Erratic when we were doing shows over at Locals Only, uh, we would pay everybody and split, you know, whatever was left, which sometimes wasn't barely enough to go through the drive-thru. Um, but we paid our talent, though. We always paid everybody. Soundman got paid. Talent got paid. Always. always. Um, so, yeah. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> that's, man, this is like, I've, you know, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I listen back to this and I'm like, how did I get to that? <laughs> oh, man, it's so funny. But that's, uh, yeah. Anyway, shout out to my Uncle Tony. That's where I started at. First DJ I ever know, TJ the DJ. He was a DJ while he was in the Air Force. He's retired Air Force. But he DJed um, as much as he could. And so always, 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 as long as I've known him, has always had gear at his house. And when I got older, the first time I ever got to touch anything that would, you could call like a DJ setup was in Uncle Tony's basement. So me and my cousin, my cousin Brandon, that's his son. So me and my cousin, that's my first cousin. Um, me and my sister, that's our first cousin on, on my mom's side of the family. We only got, the our only first cousin. So. He's more like a brother to me, and I love him, you know, love him and his family now. He got a family too now. So um, we would go down there, and we would mess around before everybody would come downstairs at family functions. And then when everybody came downstairs, I usually would, would play the music because I liked older music, and I was more, I knew a lot more of it than Brandon did. Brandon knew some of those records, but he, I mean, that wasn't, he, he would play everything that was new. He knew everything that was new. So they lived not too far from St. Louis. So he knew about all kinds of stuff that I didn't know nothing about. And he knew all the new music. And he would play it. And then we would like switch over. But it was always, you know, that's the hardest crowd I've never played for in my life. It's when I was like 12 or 13, 14, 15 years old, down in my uncle's basement playing for my family members. Because you can't just be messing up the music in my family. People love music in my family. A big family. Most everybody played something at one point in time. And everybody loved music. Everybody loved it. Everybody got their own kind of music that they love, but everybody loved music. So when it was family functions, man, you can't be messing up the flow. You know, that's when you learn. My uncle would teach me about paying attention, you know, to who's in the room, you know, and if you knew certain people had a favorite song, you'd play it while they're in the room and, you know, play stuff to make people remember certain things. And he would give me kind of like this, you could play this. And then my mama would help too. And, you know, my dad would help him. Got all these different perspectives about the music. And uh, some of everybody likes some of everything. And so, yeah. So that's kind of how I learned how to DJ. Um, I played his retirement when I was 
13, I think. 13 or 14 years old. His first gig I ever had. DJ. So, on CDs that you couldn't manipulate. So, like, you couldn't scratch. They weren't, like, CDJs or nothing like that. They were just CD players on a dual deck with a Pioneer mixer in the middle. They read the BPM. Uh, I didn't really know nothing about BPM at the time. I just would listen to stuff and think about things that would blend well together. So I wasn't really doing nothing crazy, but I was cue points and rocking loops and as much as I knew what I was doing and just trying to cue in, just really focusing on playing good music. And I, I like to think I'm still pretty good at that, playing good music. So shout out to my uncle, man. I really, I love you so much. That changed my entire life. Um, and I, I can never thank you enough for letting me mess around on your gear that was probably expensive and never, never once making me feel like, you know, like you were worried we were going to mess it up. You taught us how to use it and, you know, gave me free reign over all your CDs and that big giant book. And you would just like flip through here and just, you know, play songs that you know, play songs that you know people like. Based off of just, you know, you just pay attention. Taught me how to pay attention to music everywhere I go and just listen and, you know, for the sake of being able to play it. So thank you for that. It's uh, definitely one of the greatest things that anybody has ever taught me. So we'll be back after that, after this. Yeah, this is uh, Buddy Speaks So Well with Mr. Kinetic. Hallelujah! They call me Casper, not the friendly ghost, but the holy ghost. Hey, and I'm here to make you shout. Glory be to the one who knows what the funk's about, y'all. Amen. Short distance, baby. I'm gonna hit you with the one on the front. Too, but definitely from my pops, man. So that's Bootsy right there. That's uh, stretching out in the rubber band. That's a jam right there. Bootsy Collins is one of my favorite 
artists of all time. We saw him in concert, like, I think 2012 at the Vogue, front row. You know, I held my hand out, the mothership sign, you know, the horn, they look like the horns or whatever. You hold your sign, hold the sign out. He come out on stage, hold the sign out. He held it out in the crowd and he touched my hand. We connected, the mothership connected through Bootsy Collins. I know it's like, really, man, that's weird. <laughs> Y'all don't understand, man. That was like, what? We stayed after the show for like an hour and waited and he signed a couple of records. Signed uh signed one of my one of my Bootsy records that my dad gave me. Um anyway, yeah. Ultra funky. Main reason I ever wanted to play the bass was Bootsy Collins. I, I learned about a lot of other basses, bassists, and people that, you know, on different records. Like um I mean, I'm not even gonna start listing names. There's a lot of names. But Bootsy's like the first one that I was could name and was aware of. And I would listen to Parliament Records, Funkadelic Records, Boosie Collins Records over and over and over and over again. James Brown Records that he was playing on and just like obsessed over the bass. And still do. He was amazing. He's an amazing bass player. Amazing songwriter, amazing performer, just amazingly dynamic. And like in context to think like, you know, that's in the 70s. And brothers just, you know, big afro gold tooth man with the like i think the star on the gold tooth the big glasses the space base you know hallelujah you know they call me casper you know not the friendly ghost but the holy ghost just you know going off it's amazing those sound like basic like it just sounded like something from like another planet i always remember thinking like every there's there's like a bunch of there's music and then there's like music that's real funky and then you like hear P-Funk and it's like, it just feel different. As soon as it starts, it's just something about it. It's like, oh, this is different. I recognize that at an early age. I remember one of the early CDs my dad had was the Bootsy's Collins Greatest Hits CD. So it had a bunch of stuff on it, just the hits mostly. And uh, I remember, let's see, what's on that CD? What's on that album? Let me look right here. Greatest Hits, so you got, um, that's on there, stretching out the rubber band. Then you got, you know, Bootzilla's on there. Um, the maker of Funky Things, uh, you know, Funkin' Tech Incorporated or something like that. Then you got like, Can't Stay Away, Hollywood Squares, I'd Rather Be With You, it's just a funk ballad. I'd rather be with you, whom? Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, I'd rather be with you. Like, that's what? That is the jam. I'd rather be with you, yeah. Yeah, I'd rather be with you. And then Vanishing Our Sleep is another one. I didn't really, I didn't really dig that until I got older. Then I was like, oh, this is cool. If I could take you away. Like, man, I wasn't really hip when I was young. I'm like, this is kind of weird. If I could take you away to a better day, oh how I love would turn out okay. And if you just listen to me, we could vanish in our sleep together, just you and me. That was a little too far out there, you know, just the sound on it. I wasn't really, I, I, I would listen to it, but it wasn't like my go-to. What's So Never the Dance was my go-to, which is a joint that's like by Bootsy Collins, Phelps Collins, and uh, uh, I know that they're definitely on it, but that's like when they were called the house guests. And uh, let me see if I can find that. What's So Never the Dance? It was unreleased, I guess, up until that point. And you know, of course, that meant nothing to me as it, because everything on the album was new to me. So when I heard that, I'm like, okay, I didn't really have like the context to be like, oh, this is something that never, you know, was never out before. Or like, you know, it had never been released. Yeah, that's like when they were called House Guest Rated X. 
<laughs> That's like an what a name for a group. House guests. <laughs> like, and they only have like maybe a couple of different songs that they put out on their own label. So they like got it all pressed. This is after they left the JB. So they were with James Brown and they left in like 1971. So they, let's see, the original JBs would be Bootsy, uh, Bootsy Collins, Catfish Collins, rest in peace, Catfish. Um, Bobby Bird, Jabo, or Jabo, John Starks. Then you got Chicken, Clayton Gunnels, uh, Daryl Jameson was Hassan and Robert McCullough and Johnny Griggs on Conga. Now that's that group is who records uh, Sex Machine, Super Bad, Soul Power, Talking Loud, Saying Nothing, like the, the original JBs. Woo, they are no joke. And then they leave. Um, and they, you know, eventually Bootsy and his brother make their way to Funkadelic or whatever. Um and uh, the first time you ever hear any of them on any, like, records is, like, America Eats is Young, which is 1972. So this house guest record is just, ooh, yeah, Frank, Frank Waddy, Cash is on drums on this one. Then Chicken, Clayton Gunnell's playing trumpet, Robert McCullough on saxophone on this record. I'm going to play it here in a second. But I remember hearing that on that, break, on that Greatest Hits record, and I'm like, yo, this is... Slam it. I'm like, what is this, man? I used to listen to that record over and over and over again. I was just captivated by that record. It's so funky. So this is kind of where we're going to part ways until next time. But I'm going to play this record. And uh, I just want to thank you for tuning in so far. Make sure you subscribe if you're new. Tell somebody else. I don't really know. You know, we're just doing it for the love. This is just a beautiful way for me to be able to get some of these stories and thoughts off of my mind and record them, be able to listen to them. Hopefully, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 years from now, sit around and listen like, oh, I remember that. That was cool. That's when we lived at this house. That was this day, blah, blah, blah. You know, stuff like that. I'm all about the memories, trying to be a historian of sorts. So I'm going to leave y'all there. But thank you for tuning in. Uh, Buddy speaks so well. Shout out to my homeboy, Pete the Planner. That's my man, 50 Grand. You can go check out The Million Dollar Plan, which is his podcast. I'm on a couple episodes on there, so it's a plug. But that's my, that's my G right there. You trying to get your money right for your life. Million Dollar Plan. Go check it out. Pete the Planner. He's on uh, the, the podcast. is on iTunes as well. That's my, that's my homie. Love you, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for... Thank you for uh, Always being somebody to have some good game for a brother, you know, something to make me think about, make, you know, better myself. I appreciate that. Shout out to all the people that I mentioned on, on this podcast. Uh, I ain't even going to try to go back and remember all these people. But if you are somebody that I mentioned today, just know that I love you. Um, I'm glad you're a part of my life. You're a part of, part of the story that is my life. And I appreciate everything that you've given just by being my friend or being my family member. It means the, it means the world to me. So... Yep, but he speaks so well. Mr. Kinetic, M-R-K-I-N-E-T-I-K.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, uh, make sure you are just on this positive, productive, and peaceful. I love you. Peace.
Thank you for tuning in to Buddy Speaks So Well with Mr. Kinetic. Make sure you check me out. Hit the subscribe button, mrkinetic.com. And Mr. Kinetic at all social media outlets, M-R-K-I-N-E-T-I-K.